Hi, um, I want to welcome everyone uh, to our podcast uh, today with PJ Schnartz. PJ Schnartz, um, as uh, you guys might know, has moved to the University of Nebraska not so recently from the um, East Carolina University, where he's had a long-standing career um, as um, Assistant Dean of Academic Affairs at East Carolina, and moving into the American uh, has. Um, joined uh, the University of Nebraska as Professor of Surgery, Chief of Acute Care Surgery, and Vice Chair of Academic Affairs uh, for the last four years. And given uh, his Vice Chair role, I've asked him today to speak uh, specifically about uh, tracks as they relate to promotions for um, uh, our colleagues in acute care surgery. Um, just to provide a little bit of background, the podcast will be available uh, online, and I'll uh, have a closing comment to refer all of the listeners to that podcast. Uh, Dr. Schnartz, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have some questions for you, and I don't want to uh, grieve you too much with these questions. This is really just to help the, the young um, uh, fellows and the young professionals uh, in the East uh, Careers uh, section. We're specifically focusing on how to help them in uh, their decisions moving forward with their growth and their promotion. I have five questions for you, um, and hopefully this can be a good conversation that people will get something out of uh, this conversation. Um, the first question I have for you, um, as we uh, enter into the acute care surgery field, how do you believe uh, tracks, uh, promotional tracks, that is, for providers, fit into the goals of those providers and their respective chiefs of acute care surgery, their respective chairs in the Department of Surgery, uh, maybe even a bigger application to the universities or schools, and uh, maybe even as big as the health systems that okay. they are involved in. Well, one of the things I might might say just just to start when we when we talk about promotion, uh, there there are really two ways we can think about promotion. One is in the sort of the formal academic sort of tract of assistant to associate to full professor and tenure, but there are a proportion of acute care surgeons out there who are not actually in an academic practice, but what they may want is really promotion too, maybe from associate partner to full partner to the managing partner. And, and so hopefully uh, what I have to say will hit hit both of those types of promotion. Excellent. Uh, I will let you know that my – maybe I'll just give you, if I can, just, just a little bit of where I'm coming from with this. Uh, in my role as vice chair, I've been able to uh, – Watch how both East Carolina and the University of Nebraska uh, have have done the promotion and tenure, but I also write about four to six uh, promotion and tenure letters every every year from everywhere from Hawaii to Indiana to Ohio. So uh, a lot of this sort of informs my decision, and so I think the very first thing as an acute care surgeon to recognize is that you're really in a wonderful position uh, to ascend the academic ladder. And that is because by virtue of the fact you're most uh, acute care surgeons are, are very good teachers. They're involved in the school. A lot of the uh, work that they do uh, really has service implications. And I, for, for lack of better terminology, I, I, I think acute care surgeons are very much wired towards meeting all of the 
the criteria that most promotion and tenure committees are looking at, and there, there, are, major, there are four major areas that they look at. One is patient care. Uh, the second is research and scholarly activity. The third is teaching and education. And the last is administration. And so I think each, uh, each department of surgery and each section chief will have their own sort of views on that. But I think overall, being a key care surgeon, you are very well, well positioned. The one thing I would say that would be very helpful, uh, to anybody who is starting their career is what, what I would recommend is you know, thinking of your career now as where, where do you want it to go in the future? And then in each of those four domains, think about, well, how can I, you know, exploit one or all of them, maybe even in the same area? And so, for example, one of my uh, former colleagues uh, who was at Vanderbilt with me, he, he basically exploited the niche of education or of uh, nutrition. And this nutrition niche allowed him to, that was his administrative load and that was his patient care load, but it was also his research load and it was what he taught. And so it, it basically, as opposed to the traditional, you know, three or four legged stool of I have a lab or I have clinical duties that are desperate, this all puts it together and it was a lot easier, I think, for him to to parlay that into a very, very productive career. And I think when there's a niche like that that's open to, to a brand-new faculty member, uh, that that would be sort of the niche I would try to exploit and try to put all those aspects together. It will, it will make your life a little bit easier, but it also will immediately pull you out as a subject matter expert, which is what most or, uh, promotion and tenure people are looking for. Uh, that's that's exactly. So that last point that you made, the last sentence, um, ties it full circle back into the original question. You mentioned how um, acute care surgery divisions, departments of surgery, uh, look at their uh, young uh, professors, assistant professors, as far as promotion. Uh, you know, are they going to be in a clinical track? Are they going to be in a research track? Are they non-tenured? Are they tenured? And I would imagine most young um, professionals are going to be non-tenured, and they're going to be mostly non-researched uh, base. So if there is value for tracks and, and young professionals, uh, young fellows, understanding what tracks are, um, if tracks are important to the divisional chief, if tracks are important to the departmental chair, um, could you just elaborate on that last sentence where maybe that importance in the school and in the health system is also important? Right. So, so one of the things I, it's important, even during the job, you know, when you're looking at your job, or when you start your your new job, is are there tracks? Some, some schools do not have tracks. Some schools just have the traditional assistant associate full professor tracks. Other schools have uh, a clinically based track, or a research based track, or a teacher based track, and in each of those tracks. Uh, they have specific requirements. So, for example, if you're a really good researcher and you have a background in research and that's where you think your career is going to take you, then a research track would be a wonderful track. The downside of research track, though, is that you're going to most likely be compared with other uh, scientists. 
some of these scientists may be clinician scientists, but some of these may be pure basic scientists. And sometimes that comparison is a little bit tougher. Yes. Um, the teaching, something like a teaching or an education tract, those really focus on if that's your area of expertise and that's where you want to grow your degree, your career, then there's not as heavy a research requirement in those, but there's a pretty heavy teaching load, and they want to see that you've done some faculty development. If you get yourself in most, for, for the vast majority of people, it's actually the clinical tract. And the clinical tract means that what you're doing is you're providing a service, and if you're in that clinical track, you don't have the research uh, obligations. You have a little bit fewer of the teaching obligations, but you'll have primarily clinical responsibilities, but also some administrative responsibilities overseeing the, those clinical activities. Uh, and as you, you know, I don't, I don't think one tract is better than the other. I think it depends on the individual and where their strengths are. And if you're at an institution that does not have specific tracks, what you really, I think, want to do is maintain a at least a foothold in each of those domains uh, so that when you go up for promotion, that's they're, they're looking at all of that. Of, of interest, when, when I in every promotion and tenure letter I've done in the past oh, 10 to 15 years, they, they want to they want to know what your evaluation of the applicant is for in all those areas patient care and even if that's not your track they still want to they still want to see some academic productivity some sort of research some sort of teaching though the require the requirement bar is a little bit lower okay perfect um, you know what's interesting uh, to me is as quality, for example, and performance improvement um, is now uh, almost a universal term across disciplines. Um, you know, classically, trauma surgeons have uh, have very, very much so been uh, focused on quality, and surgical, uh, the surgical world, focused on quality. Uh, if if someone out of fellowship has a quality interest, um, can you give me an example of how a track may uh, exploit that quality interest as it relates to a bigger university and, and health system for that particular uh, uh, young uh, young professor, young young assistant professor. Sure, Greg. That, that's that's a great great question. And, and out of interest, there's probably no better field uh, for advancing your career in quality, with the except you know than trauma surgery or acute care surgery. Totally agree. You know, in order. You know, in most hospitals, uh, while they do have quality initiatives, many of these quality initiatives are, mic are macroscopic. They're looking at giant pieces of data, say, to stop, you know, urinary tract infections, whereas the performance improvement uh, aspect of trauma system, TQIP in particular, NISQIP as well, really is just such a robust and such a... Uh, fantastic way to improve patient care and by virtue of the fact that it is so robust and so carefully done the acute care surgeon is in, in probably the best position of anybody to ascend that way um, at least I can tell you like my own institution having been sort of brought up in the culture of quality which 
almost every trauma surgeon is, mm -hmm. that they are already starting ahead of the game, at least as far as, you know, their understanding of the process. Um, and because they have that greater understanding, the ability to advance their career is is really augmented. I, I can think of one of my former partners at East Carolina, for example, who got assigned uh, the task of being the quality person for trauma and you know she learned she 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 learned about preventability and systematic approaches to to complications and that really propelled her forward to eventually becoming uh you know chief of staff of the hospital and so that's really the administrative aspect that you're talking about and and even so the health she, system aspect yeah and so she was able to because quality just puts you at at the nodal point of, of almost everything going on in healthcare today, uh, and and so I, I can't think of a better uh, way to make an impact on your career and advance it than, than in quality. Quality is, and every trauma surgeon does it, so we just think of it as second nature. But in in a larger academic center, uh, trauma surgeons are usually right in the lead on on all of those things. And it really sets them up very well. Excellent. So I brought that question up as a little bit of a strategic question because I want young, um, you know, assistant professors and fellows to start to think about what they see as everyday occurrences or everyday responsibilities um, yep. as an as an opportunity to really link with the university, link with the health system, link with the hospital uh, along these provider uh, tracks uh, of of goal, priority, and and uh, promotion. So thank you. You um, you have classically lectured on uh, career paths and mentorship and sponsorship. As it relates to choosing tracks and succeeding in tracks, uh, just to review clinical tracks, researcher tracks, teaching uh, aspects of tracks, um, do you think mentorship or sponsorship help with the selection of tracks and the success in tracks? So, so I think you need both. So, so for for some of your listeners, they, they may not be familiar with each of the terms. So, mentorship is, if you will, having somebody who challenges you to be better than than you thought you could be, so, sort of like a coach, uh, and you know, who who looks at your your level of performance and adds a little bit more weight to the bar. A sponsor. Is, is slightly different in that what they do is they advocate for you. They're somebody of a higher position and they, you know, they advocate for you. They, they introduce you. They, they basically are connectors with, they try to connect you to, to other people and other opportunities. And so I think as far as it relates to the different tracks within promotion, it depends on what you have immediately available and what your, your, current state is. And so if you are not a researcher, let's say, and you go into an environment where they don't have a lot of research mentorship, then then you're going to have and or sponsorship, you're going to have to get those features from outside your university. That can be very easily accomplished and it can be done. Uh on the other hand, if you it it's when I say it's easy to accomplish, there's usually people who want to help with that. But pragmatically, it gets a little bit more tricky when you have your your mentor or your sponsor off-site. 
when you have somebody like if you if you're going into a, a situation where they're really clinically well known, you're going to have those people right there immediately available to you, and so you you don't necessarily have to have them on site with you, but you will if if you don't have them on site, you'll have to to develop them. Now even on site, it's useful to develop them across different uh, disciplines. Because promotion and tenure committees now don't want to see siloed people. They want to they want to see that you're doing stuff that's multidisciplinary and that collaborates with other people. And so, you know, you want you you're going to want to sort of broaden yourself even early in your career to to include maybe emergency medicine or orthopedics or epidemiology or public health uh, or global health and. And those sorts of things, if, if that's where your interests are, so that when they look at you, they, they think, wow, this is not a person who's just siloed as a surgeon, but they're really contributing to, to the university. I would say, though, also, as you progress through your career, what you will find is that eventually, for example, in my position uh, as a professor, I still need mentorship as well. But my mentors now mostly are outside of my institution. I have one at the University of Alabama, and I actually have one at the University of Minnesota that I use uh, very, very frequently to bounce ideas off of and to get advice and to give me counsel. Uh, so the idea of picking a mentor or a sponsor outside of your institution or outside of your discipline is is certainly reasonable as well. Excellent. Um it may vary across the country, obviously, uh, on how universities are uh, constructing their policies and guidelines uh, as it relates to governing appointments, promotions, and professional activities of their faculty. Uh, for example, here uh, in New Jersey at Rutgers, uh, we have tenure tracks and non-tenure tracks. And then to elaborate a little further, under those non-tenure tracks, there's a teaching track, a clinical track, a professional practice track, and a research track. Um, could you just give us another example, perhaps, of uh, your university structure, um, just so our listeners understand the main domains of tracking paradigms? Sure. So let me let me start with the tenure piece, because because tenure is sort of a uh, Almost obsolete term. Topic for, <laughs> well, it, it might be, uh, but it's, it's, it's an almost uh, it's, it's a term that's used in different ways. And so, when we're referring to tenure from an academic standpoint, that basically means that you are accepted at, into your department, and that your your chances of of being asked to leave dramatically go down. Now, if you do something really wrong, you know, a criminal act or something, but for the most part, tenure means you're dedicated to that university for life. doesn't mean you have to stay for life, but they've accepted you, if you will, for life. And so the way tenure is granted in most institutions is you really are a senior person who has achieved in multiple domains, and for the most part, you are your peers are the ones who accept you. So the tenure process is usually not something that comes from the chairs, but rather from your peers. And the history of it, just real briefly to give you a brief example of history, when Albert Einstein had his big year and he, he discovered, he, he debunked classic physics, founded quantum physics, 
discovered atoms, discovered molecules, and discovered the theory of relativity. He was a young, relatively junior faculty member, and he went for uh, promotion, and his chair said, no, you're an upstart, and, and I don't want to do it. And so the same thing can hack, happen academically. And so tenure basically says you are accepted by your peers as, as a permanent member of our faculty. And in some institutions, that being tenured means you have the right to vote on departmental issues or school of medicine issues. Um, and, and so that sort of is the, the tenure thing. It grants you rights and responsibilities above and beyond the average faculty member. Now, when you look at the, the promotion within the tracks, uh, within each tract, they, they have, you know, very, very specific requirements. And so, for example, a research requirement might be like at our institution that you have a certain number of publications, that those publications have a in journal or that those publications have occurred in journals with a high impact factor, that you have sustained extramural funding for your research, um, and that you're you're really a nationally known expert in a pretty finite area. Uh, that would be an example of getting promoted in, in the research tract, in the teaching tract, very similar requirements that you're, you've, you've developed the expertise and you have the documented, you know, publication, say, in education journals uh, that make you an expert or an evolving expert, say, in the fields of education. And same with clinical. Uh, an example of clinical tract promotion criteria would be, you know, that you're known in your region for doing a particular procedure or that you've brought a new technology into your institution and that you that you lecture uh you know regionally and nationally on your area of expertise uh from a clinical standpoint and then you know it's usually a pretty traditional path of you know assistant is as you would expect is sort of the entry level associate sort of the mid level and then professor is the uh the final level uh and as you ascend each of those within each of the tracks the, the requirement uh, threshold gets uh, gets much higher. Okay, excellent. Within the um, selection, if young professionals and fellows come to a conclusion, uh, for example, I want to be in the clinical track, mm -hmm. uh, how do you best strategize for your first three years, if you will, uh, to properly reflect all of your tracked accomplishments. Um, and once you do that, once you strategize for tracking your accomplishments or, or you know, a process maybe, a day-to-day -day or a week-to-week -week process to keep track of all those, um, who do you ultimately want to present that to uh, and in what way? So, so let me start with your, your first part of your question, if I can, and that is how do, how do you create a strategy? I, I, I think your best strategy in any of the tracks is going to be dependent on what you have, what substrate you have available to you. So if you're at a place, for example, that has a high penetrating trauma rate and you want to start a ROBOA program, well, that makes a lot of sense and you have a high clinical volume. 
I would, you know, make sure that what your goals are fit with the environment that you're in. That, mm-hmm. that should be your first strategic uh, step. I think your second strategic step should be, you know, who am I right now? What are what skills do I have, and what skill, and then what skills am I lacking? And how do you develop those skills, be it a particular technique, say, in the lab or a particular skill set clinically? Uh, and then once you know sort of where, where you're at right now and where you want to go, then I think you have to sort of look at maybe a three- or a five-year plan. You know, which where, where are my benchmarks that I want to be at? You know, which meetings do I want to be presenting at? Which associations do I want to be uh, joined into, and that's where I think you use your mentors and your sponsors to give you some guidance as opposed, you know, for example, going to a particular meeting where they just review topics uh, of, of general interest may not be the type of meeting you want to waste your time at. You know, you may be better at a more research-focused meeting where you're on the podium, uh, and that's where you're going to use those folks. As far as record keeping goes, that I think is is the the weakest part of almost every promotion uh, person I've seen up for promotion that has failed, and that is because they haven't they failed to capture what it is they actually are doing on a a day to day basis. So my advice, and it's very pragmatic, is I use my CV. I, I I basically have my CV on my desktop. And I, at the end of every week or every two weeks, it's a living document. I just put onto that CV anything that, you know, I have done either a presentation or, say, this podcast or a publication or if I've been assigned to a committee. So it captures everything I do. And then in in addition, I have sort of a very funny file. It's called the Don't Fire PJ file. (laughs) <laughs> and if I get if I get a letter from a patient or I get patient evaluations or student evaluations or resident evaluations or anything that just wouldn't fit on a CV, I just throw it into that box. Uh, and so at the end, so let, let me let me use maybe patient care if I can. Let me give you a couple examples of things for patient care that you probably want in your file if you're on the patient care track or clinical track, and one would be a productivity metric such as an RVU. The second, you know, your RVU productivity per year. The second would be regional referrals. You know, how many regional referrals are you getting? You know, are you an officer in a regional society? You know, are you an oral board examiner? Uh, You know, are your clinical, you know, how do your clinical contributions Aligned with your medical school mission, you know, and your quality metrics, your TQIP metrics, your your HCAP scores, any clinical guidelines you may have developed. You know, all of those things count. Uh, Invited clinical presentations, Uh, you know, and a lot of these things sort of have, have scholarly, I think. So if you've done a grand round or you've, uh, you know, talk to the medical students on something. All of that should be caught, you know, you know, somewhere uh, brought into your, into your, if you will, the, the don't fire me file. It's really it could be probably better termed as the promotion file. 
uh, and that way when you come down to it's time to submit stuff, you you have you know you have resident values things that you just thought you'd never ever look at before uh, really will carry a lot of weight and then then you'll have it all there for you and that really I think makes things easier. I've seen a number of people over the years though who who have really done some great things and when I sit down and look at their file and go over it with them in preparation. I'm like, well, weren't you on this committee that, you know, founded the electronic medical record here at the University of Nebraska? And we're like, yeah. I was like, well, why isn't that on your CV, right? Like, that took a lot of time and effort and demonstrates leadership and thoughtfulness and, and oh, I forgot to put it on. So I, I actually just use my CV and that sort of, if you will, drop into, uh, you know, promotion file that, you know, when it comes time for promotion, you just pull that stuff together, and, boy, you have it handy by, and it's a much easier process. Excellent. Uh, promotion file, uh, if I can quote you, right? Yep. Okay. With that promotion file, once you have that together and you are presenting it to your chief and chair, um, how do you suggest to best prepare for that single moment or 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 uh moment that may require a second follow-up meeting how do you best prepare for that conversation so 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 the first thing you want to do i think before you even have the conversation is get a hold of your promotion and tenure guidelines and make sure that you know you're meeting the criteria uh you know to the you read through them make sure you're you're you've met the criteria then I think your your next step after that is typically, and, it, and let me just say, if you, and if you have a question, you know, am I going to meet this criteria? You know, most departments have somebody who's in charge of promotion and tenure. That's that's their administrative role, and and those folks will always typically sit down with you and say, you know, hey, I've reviewed your stuff. Yeah, this looks pretty good. It's it's not a pass. But, yeah, you've hit the marks or you're understanding the criteria correctly. And then I think you go to either your section chief or your division chief at the right time and you say, hey, I want to be promoted. I think I've met the requirements. Here's my information. Uh, and that usually then it's the same conversation with, with the chair uh, about submitting it in. Now, there is some, depending on the institution, there, there is some risk if you are submitting early. So the, you know, the average time to go from assistant to associate is about five years. So if you're going to go up at two years, they're going to want to really see that your, you know, your productivity and your accomplishments have just been like astronomical. Uh, but if you wait the full five years, then you're sort of in the normal pathway. Uh, so I would say, you know, there's some risk in going up uh, too early, but don't be afraid to go up and, and postpone it too late either. Uh, but don't don't make sure you're meeting the requirements that as as they're laid out. Excellent. And, and follow the instructions. That I, that's another thing I've seen occasionally. For example, here at the University of Nebraska, for whatever reason. Um, your letter of, of inquiry saying I'm, I'm requesting a promotion has to be on yellow paper. Sounds silly. Right? <laughs> it just sounds completely silly. But that is the rule. I don't know how many times you get it and they're on blue paper. And you're like, yeah, we, we're going to have to re, we're gonna have to postpone your promotion for a year because you didn't read the instructions. 
the last thing I would say is as you go through the promotion and tenure process, so you're going to talk to you're going to look at the requirements number one. You're going to talk to your section or division chief number two. Talk with your chair number three, and then you're going to follow the rules and submit it. But what happens after you submit the rules is sort of a bit of a mystery to people. And so what usually happens is the department promotion and tenure committee will meet. They will look at you. They'll review you in light of their criteria and what you have documented, and they'll either re- reject you or per- or recommend promotion. If they recommend promotion, then it typically goes to the medical school level. And at the medical school level, there's a whole other group of people who are looking at this, but now the pool of people looking at this are different. So they're not surgeons like you and me, Greg. They are, you know, microbiologists and ethicists and, and you know, the the guy who, who taught, you know, social and behavioral medicine. And they're looking at your stuff. And they're going to make the, you know look at you again in relation to the criteria, and they'll either say reject or recommend for promote. So that say recommend for promote, then it goes to the university, and now it gets even dicier because there are almost no physicians on the university uh, promotion and tenure committee. They're like your English professor and your college high or your college uh, history professor. Mm-hmm. And they're going to look at you in light. So they don't, they, they're not going to understand, you know, that you've done 500 colodocal jejunostomies. They, they don't even know what that means. And so you got to make sure that, you know, you're with the criteria and you've, ex- and, and you got all your ducks in a row, um, in the other areas like publications and that sort of thing. And then once you're approved by the school, then it goes, I'm sorry, it usually goes school, University, and then it typically goes to either a board of governors or something like that of the school, or the chancellor of the school, who who then confers the or the promotion or the degree, um, and and that's that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. You know, you don't send a child psychologist to look at your trauma site visit, right? Yes. But when you put up for promotion and tenure. Uh, your college history professor, the one who taught you about medieval, you know, things, he, he's going to be the guy looking at, you know, what your, uh, what your productivity is. So, Absolutely. Uh, but that, that sort of outlines the process. Thank you for that, that thorough uh, process. In the last minute here, um, for our listeners, um, can you give us an inspirational story, um, as the vice chair of academic affairs at the University of Nebraska for a, um, a, a, Professor, uh, either assistant or associate, that you've promoted uh, as a as a you know a very impressive, inspirational uh, um, person. You know, you mentioned someone going up for promotion in two years rather than five. Can you give us a short um, uh, example of someone that has uh, impressed you as the vice chair of academic affairs and why? So, so the the one the one that impressed me the most, and interestingly, is not somebody who went up. Uh, Early, it's somebody who who uh, went up right at mid, at, right at the midpoint in which they were supposed to. And it's one of our vascular surgeons, and he started. And there was not a lot of infrastructure here uh, to support his research and, and stuff he was interested in, and and so he sort of struggled for a couple of years to find his footing. And what he studies is the femoral artery. And he studies the femoral artery 
not as it relates to the whole body with you know systemic vascular disease. He studied it in what are the biomechanics of the femoral artery that make it different, say, than the brachial artery or the aorta, and why is it that we get atherosclerosis not based on you know lipid loads and stuff, but just the mechanical stresses on on the femoral artery. So he's a very he's a vascular surgeon, and so his clinical work is obviously the femoral artery and, and other attached arteries. And he was novel in his approach. He thought about something in a very different way. When everybody else was talking about, you know, triglycerides and everything, he was talking about how your knee bends and that is a stress point. And he developed a, a series of experiments, and, and some of them relatively simple but very, very informative on how that artery worked. And because it was so novel and so unique, uh, that allowed him to get some grant funding, and his career just just skyrocketed. Um, and he also now, he, you know, he obviously teaches the residents on vascular surgery and teaches the medical students about vascular disease. And so he really had built a a niche for himself that he just wildly exploited just because it was so novel and so so different and you know his his promotion from assistant to associate was was a chip shot i mean you know you couldn't say enough nice nice things about it uh and so i i think he he was just a a great example of you know capitalizing on what he had immediately available to him though it was very different than what he initially thought and then uh just staying focused in one very one very very specific area and then just exploiting it for his service for his administration for his clinical and for his scholarly activity and i think that's the way to do it i think you know you pick you pick an area and you just exploit it you know you're you're sort of like the the little mammal in the world of the dinosaurs cuz because in a lot of ways, that's what surgery is. We got we got a lot of dinosaurs in surgery, but you know the young uh, the the young uh, acute care surgeon is is very much like that mammal from you know eons ago that's just going to exploit, and you know eventually those dinosaurs are all going to go away, and, and you're going to be the biggest you know most impressive thing on the planet. So well, I, I, I think uh, I think trauma surgeons, acute care surgeons are in just such a perfect position uh, for promotion and tenure. Well, I'm, I'm inspired by that, and I hope the listeners are inspired by that, uh, some of those closing comments. And uh, on behalf of the East Career Development Section, uh, I would like to personally thank you, Dr. Schnartz, for taking time to speak with us today. Uh, there's been some conversations leading up to this, so I thank you for your time as well. I know you're busy as the Vice Chair of Academic Affairs there in, at the University of Nebraska. Uh, for all the listeners, again, uh, my name is Gregory Peck. That will be important for the link on the East Careers section podcasts. I hope you enjoyed the program. When you find a moment of time, please visit the East website at www.east.org for more East Career podcasts and other valuable information. Thank you very much. Thank you, Greg.